Dr. Jordan Schlein, uh, founder and managing partner at Private Medical and host of a longevity podcast called Inside Medicine. Thank you for being on the podcast today. It's good to be here. Yeah, welcome. Welcome to Berkeley, your old stomping grounds. My alma mater. <laughs> it's wonderful to have you. Uh, we met through my, my brilliant partner, business partner, Kim Colt, and, um, and we're, we're thrilled and honored to have you as a Bay Bridge Ventures advisor. And uh, it's just been great getting to know you uh, this past year. So, so appreciate you coming on the podcast. And I know you're a podcaster yourself, so this is uh, something you do often, but uh, it's, it's a pleasure to have you. It's always good to be on another podcast and learn. <laughs> Excellent. Um, so I guess first off, tell us about Private Medical. So Private Medical is a family office for health and medicine. It's organized around how to, well, I mean, if, if I think about what I, would, what I would have said 10 years ago, I would have said if you had a magic wand and you tried to imagine what healthcare could be for you and your family, what would you envision? How would it work? And people say, well, I would want this and I would want that. And I would want to be able to get hold of my doctor when I need to. And I'd want the specialists to all talk to each other. And I want there to be you know, all my data in one place. And I'd want to make sure, you know, and, and so I built that. So I've been building private medical for 20 years with the premise of how do you organize people, data, um, and, and technology around a single principle of how do you get the best outcome the fastest? And how do you prevent bad things from happening? Because you can see them a, a long way away if you're actually looking. So it's really you have to know what the data is. So we, we, what their biological data is, how they interact with the world, what their risk tolerance is, what their risk profile is, um, and what their portfolio of, of, of metabolic and cardiovascular and genetic things are so that you can actually package someone up. And because we take care of families, adults, kids, parents, you get an entirely different set of insights than if you just took care of an individual. Because sometimes the wife or the husband will say, hey, do you know about that? Have they been, are, are they being clear and honest with you about this? Or the kids will say, we had one story where the kids said to their pediatrician, yeah, we don't really know our dad. He travels too much. So the wife then told my partner that, uh, that, uh, the, that my husband and my kids don't they don't really know each other. So then it got over to me, and so I sat the guy down, and I said, so how's it going? He goes, oh, it's great. I'm a CEO of a big company. I'm flying around the world and doing all sorts of fun, crazy stuff, <clears throat> building my business. I said, how are the kids? He goes, oh, they're great. I'm like, yeah. I said, you know, I have on good authority that they don't really know who you are, and they're 10 and 11, and they're about ready to go to high school. And he said, that's patently not true. He was offended and kind of got up. Look, you know, kind of like his dander got up. He's like, doctor, why are we talking about my relationship with my kids? You're my internal medicine doctor. I said, I said, well, look, I mean, I didn't mean to offend you, but I think, I think it's worth taking a look down there and talk to your kids. And, you know, because you're only unhappy, you're only as happy as your unhappiest child. And which is an old saying. And if you, they go off to college and they didn't get to know you, you don't get another shot, bite at that apple because they're gone. And so he came back a few weeks later for some follow-up visit, and he said, hey, doc, you know, I, I talked to my kids, and, and they, they said exactly what you said to me. I said, I think you need to quit your job. He goes, quit my job? What are you talking about? He was probably in his late 30s, maybe early 40s. I said, look, you've, you've kind of climbed the mountain. You've made the money. You've 
accomplished all the success. And he said, what would I do afterwards? I said, well, you'll spend time with your kids and you'll get to know them and you'll, you'll build another business. There's, 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 you're like a natural entrepreneur. Six months later, it was a publicly traded company. It was a big, big company. He quit his job. Got to, now he's got a great relationship with his kids 10 years later, and he sent them off to college. He visits them all the time. And so private medical is taking care of an entire family and not really siloing any one piece of, quote, unquote, what medicine is and what it should be. And I think there's all these legacy concepts of medicine that we bring to the present tense, which are fragments of things that may have worked in a other time with the little bit of data that we had. And so I want to bring in a, a creativity and imagination. And a, if I had no constraints, what would I build and how would I build it? And what resources would the doctors have? What resources would our members have? We don't even call them patients because they're not sick. They're members. When they're sick, we'll refer to them as patients, but we don't, but even the language matters. Hmm. So we have lots of different language that we use that really tries to honor people in their lives and not kind of medicalize them. I see. And and how much of this is is possible? I guess I'm, try, I'm trying to decouple your insights in that. What's possible within the existing framework and, and the existing system that you know, just requires a different point of view or a different approach versus what's possible kind of privately outside of the system and outside of like, you know, your standard um, medical healthcare system? Yeah, it's a great question. The existing structure is a broke fix model. So you go to it when it's broken. It's not a healthcare system. It's a health insurance system. And, and fundamentally what that means is that anybody that interfaces with the existing system, uh, they get paid when you interface with them, which the sicker you get, the more money they make. Right, so cure is a bad business model. Uh, prevention is a bad business model for people that get paid in transactions. And remember, the insurance companies are cost plus. So whatever they do, they're always going to make money. But the but below the insurance company, where there's the doctors and the hospitals and everybody else, they must make money. <laughs> you know, and so the, they will find ways to make money if the money's not coming in. And there's so many different levers to pull on and dials to turn to, you know, let's pay the doctors less, let's charge this a little bit more, let's more patients per, per day. I mean, there's lots of levers that that system can do that kind of dishonors the system. So within that system, what can you do? Uh, not a lot. Um, and, and by the way, the doctors sign contracts with insurance companies and or hospitals that significantly limit their, their abilities or degrees of freedom to, to either be creative or do anything that's ostensibly angled towards promotion of health and prevention because that doesn't pay the bills. So within the existing healthcare system, it's really kind of mad uh, in terms of what you can't do. Now, I will say that what's happening within the healthcare system, but it was really tipped off by Obamacare. And a lot of people think Obamacare was about insurance, but it was about the concept of value-based care, which is taking risk. And the way I would frame private medical, and I was actually called into the White House when Obama was there as a model for how the system could could be scaled up based on a kind of a single concept because I was one of the original kind of quote unquote concierge medicine doctors, which is imagine if my good income was based on your good outcome versus the system today, which is my good income is based on your bad outcome. 
the sicker you get, the more money I make, the more hospitals. So hospitals don't want you to go home. <laughs> I mean, unless they're told they'll make less. So what value-based care effectively did was say to uh, doctors and doctor groups, hey, we'll pay you, you know, $15,000 for this heart failure patient. And if the patient winds up going back to the hospital, you know, guys don't get any more money. So then they have to organize their, the patient's journey and all of their processes around the best outcome, which, which is what I've been doing for 20 years. So value-based care is one of the things that's existing within the system, but it's causing the system to get tied up in knots because it's, you know, it's, it's cannibalizing some of their existing business. So they're only doing value-based care modules with cart failure and, and these, these very specific high-cost, high-acuity disease states. They're not preventing heart failure. They're making sure if you have heart failure, you prevent another hospital admissions with the heart failure. So they're at the most expensive part of the chain. And I think we need to bring that back to the beginning of the chain and try to keep people out of hospitals, try to keep people away from doctors. And there is um, something called quaternary prevention. Hmm, I haven't heard of that. Right. So what is primordial prevention? So I'll, I'll real, real briefly, I'll give a, a summary of prevention. Primordial prevention is making sure your kids make it to childbearing age. So there's a prevention that as a parent you have to make sure your kids get to an age where they can reproduce. Primary prevention is seat belts and vaccines and like all the stuff that we talk about to prevent things from happening, wearing helmets. Uh, secondary prevention is, oh, it looks like you have high cholesterol and it's genetic. We know that that's going to cause a heart attack in the future. So secondary prevention is giving you a statin because your diet won't work because it's genetic to prevent a heart attack. Tertiary prevention is I had a heart attack and I don't want to get another heart attack. So then I put all these, uh, you know, statin and, you know, all these other medications and lifestyle changes and stop smoking and get the blood pressure treated so that you don't have another one. Quaternary prevention is a relatively new term coined, I think, in 2018, which is the healthcare system is doing harm by its overusage. So the prevention is to stay away from the healthcare system. That's quaternary prevention. And it's a real thing. And, and I think that if you really zoom way out and think about the past and Hippocrates, which said do no harm, it's really the healthcare system's doing harm. And the reason why Hippocrates said let's do no harm is because the shamans were sticking hot pokers in people's necks saying this will get rid of your whatever your pain was, but they were causing harm by trying to treat something. And so that was the first version of the Hippocratic Oath. I think we need a new Hippocratic Oath to, that, that hospitals – so right now the only person to take the Hippocratic Oath is doctors. Imagine if hospitals and pharmaceutical companies and insurance companies and, and, and health tech companies, imagine if they had to take an oath that they did no harm and they had to be held accountable to it, right? Then maybe we, we could be having a different conversation about the next version or the, of, of, of a healthcare system that's truly a healthcare system, not a health insurance. It's not really a system. It's really a kind of a hodgepodge of things that are stuck together through, you know, by dint of regulation and history, not by any thoughtful design. So I think we do need design. We do need creativity. It needs to be human first, which is back to private medical is like, I've taken the approach of like, I'm going to like, no, 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 no. I'm not going to look at anything else that exists. I'm just going to think about what would I want if I was to be plugged into a, a system? How would I want that system to work for me? And how would I want to work for it? And really kind of coming up with those things. So the second part of your question is, you know, what can you do with the existing system? What can you do in a private world? In the private world, you can kind of do anything. 
as long as you keep your ethical kind of compass intact, as long as you're, well, in, in the private world, remember, if you don't like me, I don't do a good job, you fire me, I lose a customer. In the existing system, you don't like your doctor, guess what? Still getting paid. Doesn't matter. So there's no free market in the existing system. So I live in the free market of medicine where I have to every day show up. I have to improve my systems. I have to pay attention to what's going on with health tech, with biotech, with wearables, with AI, <clears throat> with longevity science. And I have to bring to each one of my members the truth about what this can do for you and how we can make this work. There's a ton of people selling potions and tonics and, and um, things that, that are marketing first, science second. And I think what people really want is science first and marketing second. Um, but it's hard to it's hard to figure out which is which out there. So, I, like, I'm super optimistic that like what I'm doing, I've I've led the way for a lot of other doctors to leave the system and start concierge practices or direct practices or membership based practices where they have agency over their their lives. Because doctors that work for big hospital systems and, and big groups, they're really just widgets spinning faster and faster to try to generate more money in this transactional model. So there's really no limit to what can be done. It's really how, how organized are you going to be around systems, methodology, and ethics. That's where you can, I mean, where the magic happens. And we, we hold very dear to our group, our ethics, our designs, and our methodology. Right. right. I mean, <clears throat> it makes a lot of sense, especially in the, <clears throat> in the capitalistic world we, we deliver it, we, we live in. Um, you know, serving the customer, right? If you can serve the customer and their health and their family, it makes a lot of sense. You have this amazing quote. I, I got, I'm going to repeat it for you, and and but I want to know what you what it means to you. You've said, you've been quoted as saying, "I'm 75% doctor, 10% psychologist, 10% priest, 4% bartender, 1% friend." Um, yes. Expand on that in you know the historic patient or member doctor relationship versus what it should be. Well, I think that. I believe that as a human, you want to feel valued and you want to feel included and you want to believe that there is honesty, authenticity, and benevolence in a relationship, full stop. So as you exist in the world in business or, you know, we've all had multiple relationships, which one like encompasses all of those things all of the time? Almost none because someone wants something from you or someone's upset about something. So as, as physicians in our, in our model, you know, we have to understand that like if someone's grumpy or upset or, you know, and they're sick, like we don't take that personally at all. Like you can't. So that's part of the, so that's part of the psychologist is we have to understand what your psychology is. And if I'm a doctor, I can understand your physiology. And if I can put your phys physiology on top of your psychology, I can be, I can be empathic hundred percent of the time. Even, and, and they're inherently related. And they're it's right. the same thing. I mean, right. it's not the same thing, but they're definitely the same related. And then the the rabbi and the bartender and the friend pieces, and you switch out rabbi for priest or or um, you know any other religious person, which is these are people that you come to in crisis when you don't have anybody else to turn to, or you need to ask an honest question, and someone's going to give you an honest answer that's unbiased based on some tenets of, of a philosophy, like religions are, are philosophies, they're moral codes. Um, and then the bartender is, and I say bartender for men, I say hairdresser for women, sometimes because 
these are people you'll tell anything to. You'll tell the the absolute truth of what you did last weekend and what happened at the thing because you know it's in the vault and it's it's like it's like a truth telling person that like you know if they ever you know spilled the beans on what you did you know their careers would be ruined. So they have their own version of like a <laughs> of a confidentiality code. And then the friend is like you want to feel like someone's you know at least like a little bit your friend. I think doctors that want to be too friendly with their with their patients. Like that starts to go a little sideways because then you blur the lines of boundaries of like, hey, when I say this to you, like you need to understand that I'm bringing the full force of my expertise, my my empathy, and and my belief that I've seen this movie before, and you're you're going down Act One, Scene Two. I know that's going to be a bad choice. We need to make Act One, Scene Two differently, and and here's why. And you and and you know you and your friends can joke around and you can push back and yeah, well you don't know anything. So we have to bring a lot of 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 weight to this. And so the one percent friend is like there is a little bit of friend there, but it's not enough that you can push back in a meaningful way so that you can you know tell yourself a story that's not true. Because when your doctor says you know all of these things, here's the data, here's what we know, here's what what the what the trend is, and we need to do this even if you don't want to do it you're going to take it 99% seriously. How much over the years have you seen <clears throat> things change in terms of the way patients want to interact or members want to interact with their doctor? And I'm, I'm thinking aloud in, in that. I think, you know, with, with more access to information via the internet and, and other sources, I get the feeling, A, what I've heard from doctors is, you know, on one hand, that's frustrating, right? Because it's like they they have a diagnosis or they have an opinion and the customer says, well, I saw on TV this this drug or I, I, I went read to Google. This. Yeah. I went to Google. I went to, but at the same time, I feel like behind that is I think people want to have more of a, you know, more, more say in their healthcare. They want a thought partner. They want someone who's really going to listen to them. Um, and, and it kind of, it kind of ties to the point or, you know, one of the, let's say, stereotypes about doctors, right, which is like big ego, you know, like I tell you what it is. And like, do you have to do you have to be a to, to work, let's say, at, at private medical? Do you have to be a different kind of doctor that, that kind of wants to engage in that kind of thought partnership or? So so yes. And like just brief, brief sidebar is my father was a surgeon. Surgeons are the ones with the big egos in general. Like the primary care doctors are not the ones with the big egos because we're going into the front lines, the problem surface of people's lives, whereas the surgeons and the specialists, you know, they they come in for a specific micro problem against the backdrop of your whole life, and they try to help tend to it, hopefully in partnership with a primary care doctor like like us. Um, so, you know, I think that people who go into primary care, internal medicine, pediatrics, family medicine, you know, all this primary care stuff, like these are the true people that want, that, that healing called them. The ego didn't call them into that. Um, healing did. I think a lot of them get grind down in the existing systems. So we find physicians who are, you know, experienced, uh, their pedigree is, you know, from great schools, so they, you know, they're smart, they're trained well, they're empathic, they've got good bedside manner, they understand tech, they have open minds, they, they, they're not, um, they're not the the stereotype that you refer to. And then we have a methodology where we we hope to train them into like, you know, we tell tell a lot of the doctors that that join us is like, you know, it's going to take you a year to learn the private medical way. But it's going to take you six months to unlearn the way that you've been kind of brainwashed by the system for the last 
10 years or 15 years. Right. Because we don't have to. I mean, just by way of example, like some doctors, like they document every conversation with everybody because of, you know, the risk of malpractice and the risk of like, you know, you must document everything. And it's like, okay, that was great when you had a doctor's office and someone came in for 15 minutes and you documented they left. And if they left a phone message, you know, it was a sticky note on your on your thing and you maybe you jump on the call and then you you write a little note in their chart. With email, text, WhatsApp, Signal, Telegram, like you can't document everything. You'll, you'll go crazy making, especially when you give someone access to everything. So we try to tell doctors, you don't need to document everything, that every single interaction. What you do need to document is the substance of like 10 communications in one. Like you, you, can, you can do that. But if you're in the existing system, you can't do that. You must document every single interaction. Every single tech. And, and so like the Mayo Clinic recently just um, said that it's going to cost $50 to, to email the doctor now through the MyChart. Or, or the Cleveland Clinic, sorry. And so, by the way, you can't ask people f- to do stuff for free. Who, who, who on this podcast does work for free in their commercial lives? You can do it as a nonprofit. But, you know, if you email your doctor on MyChart and they're not getting paid for it, you're asking them to spend a bunch of time on a long question that you may ask them for free. But to go back to your original question is, is what's changed? What's changed is in the late 90s, everybody had access to a computer and Google, or actually it was Yahoo back then. And they would, hey, doctor, I've got this pain here. So I printed up like 28 pages of stuff that I found on WebMD or whatever. And they, and I'm like, yeah, I went to school. I don't need to read that. I can just <laughs> figure this out. But everybody, I think, ultimately wants to be the master of their or, or controller of their destiny. They want to have real agency in what's going on with them and the decisions that that are made, going back to this advocacy agency. role. Yep. And ag- it's with agency. And so the more people can have agency, the more they feel better and the more they feel less dependent upon someone else who they may or may not know or may or may not trust. Um, so, you know, up until the, the mid-2000s, people would go online and now, and they would print up a bunch of stuff. And you people would show up with just reams of paper bad for the environment, you know, bad, but, but maybe good for their mental health. Hopefully they recycled it. You know, nowadays they come in, well, back and then in the, in the 2000s, 10s, 11s, 12s, you know, a couple of these Fitbits came out and then they would show you all their data unfiltered. Here's like pages and pages of my heart rate and my, my heart rate. And it's like, okay, you know, people have been living for a long, long time and, and this never mattered. And, you know, needle in a haystack, maybe find one person with one thing that I never found anything you know, for decades, but everybody wants to show you their data and, and all their stuff. Now, don't don't get me wrong. I'm wearing an aura ring right now. And I love to measure things because I think they, they give you some version of pattern recognition and insight. But on a day-to-day basis, you'll go crazy making if you're going to try to watch all your data, manage your family, look at the stock market, manage your job, your employee, you know, it's just one more thing that you really, you know, where, that's where AI is starting to come in to kind of organize all these things. And that's a lot of opportunity in the health tech space to take all these wearables, create a single dashboard. So I think where people are now is now there's telemedicine. You can pick up an app and talk to a doctor, especially with COVID kind of coming to a, I won't say a close, but at least uh, we know what's going on, the, the anxiety and the fear of it. And so a lot of people are just taking the healthcare into their own hands and they're trying to be their own doctor. And like they're going on this telemedicine service and they're wearing this app. And, and, and ultimately they're doing themselves a disservice because you do need a partner and you need someone that like, at least got your back and that knows you and that will prevent you from being your own worst enemy and making decisions because you heard it on some podcast like that you should take this supplement or do this thing. And and like was that podcast or was that, you know, a TV show or was that, you know, news article? Was that real science or was, again, going back to marketing versus 
science. So there's a lot of people trying to market to a lot of people that want the agency. They're going to give them the agency. But but the question about safety and efficacy is, is like, that's down over here. Like, maybe that matters. Maybe it doesn't. But it's it, but they're going to make more money the more things they sell or the more clicks they get. And, and, I, and I feel like we're hitting a moment where I think that's, that's going to turn um, because there's something called the pessimistic meta-induction theory, otherwise known as the meta-induction theory, <clears throat> which basically states that everything that – most things that we know in science in 10 years from now will be refuted by something else we learn. So you can't hold anything as canon right now um, or, or the truth because it will evolve and and so, but you can make a lot of money selling that thing now versus having you know more of a tempered approach to like should I do that? Why should I not do that? What are the risks? What are the benefits? A lot of this is just gambling. You're gambling because you heard it on a podcast or you read it on the saw it on TV with your health. And I I just think that's where we've gotten to because the healthcare system is so messed up that you're going to go get your health information from somebody that is selling something that you didn't even know was selling something because they were so charismatic. And they were so, hey, everyone sees this podcast and like, you know, they must be great. Uh, they're saying do this. And you're like, well, if, lo- if longevity science was that well known, you'd have to ask yourself, um, have we had three generations of people do that and live longer? Oh, no, no. Sorry. Longevity science is only two years old. So, <laughs> But they're selling it now. And like you're, they're selling futures It's that that is all risk and very little potential reward. So it's unprovable. It's it's unproven, and so I like I like the scientific method. I like hypotheses. I like I like peer review. I like I like to you know for people that don't like to be criticized for their science, like beware. Like every great scientist wants to be proven wrong so that they can then get the right answer. I I, I like to tell people I argue like I'm right, but I listen like I'm wrong, and that's that's intellectual humility. It's intellectual curiosity. But you have to like it's okay to be wrong. Because if you're wrong, you learn something new and now you're right again. And, and, and so you're, you're accreting knowledge to yourself versus so many people would rather like die than be wrong, as we've seen in recent political things. Like being, being wrong is, is existential to people because they, they attach their ego to their belief system. So I can be a happy person in my ego and I can have a belief of that. And if that belief is wrong, it doesn't attach to my ego. Unless, unless I've made my ego and my belief system the same thing. And then if I'm wrong, it's like a, it's an existential death. I, I've been killed while I'm alive. Um, Ernst Becker has a denial of death book. Uh, you know, he's a philosopher that really kind of unpacks this, like the symbolic life we live and the biologic life we live. The biologic one being fragile, the symbolic one being I'm right or I'm wrong. And what's my legacy and, and how do I want to be known? And, and, you know, that's where a lot of, I think, psychopathy and mental health comes from is because we, we, we attach our, our egos and our belief systems too tightly when they really should be separate things. We should honor them both. And I feel like scientists uh, are some of the best up, uh, on that because of the scientific method and because of the philosophy of science, right? <clears throat> 100 years ago, 200 years ago, I mean, a lot of the scientific you know, facts have been disproven That's right. um, across all different uh, scientific disciplines, um, healthcare among them. Um, and your, your point around, I'm really intrigued by this point, right? Because it's kind of like on one hand, over here, you've got the medical system, you know, the system, the machine, right? I call um, it a freako system. It's not an ecosystem. A, fr- a freako system. <laughs> and then all the way on this side, you've got the 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 patients or who are 
fed up with that system and are, but then turning to the medical hucksters and saying, hey, I can do this all myself. All I have to do is like, you know, pay this guy for these supplements or whatnot. <clears throat> um, and it, it seems to me you're, you guys are somewhere in the middle and you're trying to kind of avoid the worst of both, but kind of adopt the best of both and, and kind of align incentives. Yeah, I like to say that we're different, not better. Mm -hmm. Because if you're better than dog shit, like <laughs> I don't know what you are, but if you're different, then at least we can have a conversation. I sorry to swear on the podcast, but That's fine. but 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 you know, I mean, the truth is, is like it's hard. It's hard to be better than what exists right now because it's all so bad everywhere. Like I don't care what TV commercials you see and what beautiful buildings you see that are hospitals like whatever it's just they're all existentially challenged with this health insurance system that isn't a system it's 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 like it's a very you know hyper capitalistic in a way that like betrays a, a public good i mean now i'm not saying that healthcare needs to be socialist and that's that's exactly the opposite of what what i'm doing but i do believe that we need to not go all the way and make it, you know, this this free for all where anybody can do anything and there's not a lot of oversight. We 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 forget that there are people at the end of this thing and everyone has a health. The market for healthcare is everybody. The market for gummy bears or the market for, you know, a skateboards, you know, the the you know, like what's the TAM on those things? The market for healthcare is everybody. So like there's a big enough market that you should be able to make money and do good and do the right thing every single time. And not get caught up in the trap of how do I make more and like undercut this or not, you know, only people are going to suffer at the end. And, and ultimately, we have to get to a place where people get paid on good outcomes. Like full stop everywhere. Right. And, and that's, I think, the 20 to 30 year transition period we're in right now. And we're probably in the bottom of the first inning. Because it's it, it's just unsustainable. The cost, you know, the age and and the like, the diabetes in kids right now, and, and you know, I mean, the, that's a lifetime of disability, no education, healthcare system. I, I I like to anchor my metaphors. Health is freedom, meaning every minute that you're getting a blood test or seeing a doctor or seeing a specialist is a minute you're not doing something else, right? You're 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 not free to roam about the cabin of life if you're stuck and tethered to the healthcare system. So how do you stay untethered? Well, you need an advocate and you need to stay healthy. You need to be given the tools to make the right decisions. So the right decisions are, and everybody should, you know, get a piece of paper out right now, get a pencil and make two columns at the top of your paper. What am I doing that I shouldn't? And what am I not doing that I should? And, and you should write these things down. And everybody knows the things that they shouldn't. I drink too much. I don't exercise enough. Like, so you can start filling these things out. But that, that list gets long. And if you can just start looking at these things, like, I don't want to be the guy that got COVID that wound up on a ventilator because I led my life this way. And a lot of people get trapped into these cycles of patterns and they just, they feel trapped. And But with a good advocate and with data and, and with like a good program, anybody can work their way out of diabetes, type 2 diabetes, you know, which is the most prevalent insidious one, and a lot of other medical problems, hypertension, um, you know, all the people that are going to get retinopathy and nephropathy, eye disease, kidney disease, like measure your blood pressure every, every month. Just go figure it out. Like not knowing is not okay. And I think a lot of people, you know, if it doesn't hurt, it doesn't bleed, and it doesn't cause me anxiety, then it's fine not true. 
Like you're, you're grinding the gears of your own machine and you're going to grind them into you becoming tethered to the healthcare system as you get older. And I think as you get older, you want to like have freedom to not be stuck to that system. Health is freedom. Health is wealth. That's, that's something I've, I've, uh, I think about quite a bit. Um, yeah, I mean, just cause we talked about this list of like, what should I be doing? What should I not be doing? <clears throat> this, this, this may be a, you know, a trite question or a simple, too simple of a question, but like. What recurring mistakes do you see people making just over and over and over in their own personal healthcare decisions? Um, I think the most common one is they're too busy to, to engage or they, they fancy themselves as too busy to engage. And I think it's a tactic for kind of like denial. Like they, they know that if they engage in this thing, they're going to have to acknowledge a flaw. And, you know, that's a stigma to people and nobody likes to be wrong again, but like not just wrong, but like, doing things wrong, not not fundamentally like having a belief that's wrong. So I think people are too busy. People will find uh, alternative data to uh, to um, refute the thing they know. They can find some reason to, to keep doing what they're doing and, and not totally honestly engage in the issue that they should be doing. Like <clears throat> it requires you to really step back and almost you have to meditate to clear your head so that you can see the thing in front of you, why it's bad for you. And ultimately you have to be able to, to imagine your future self, right? So people say, where do you come from? People, people think I'm going to say San Francisco, but I say the future. I say, I come from your future, right? And what do I mean by that? I mean, like I, I can look at you now and I, and I can go to your future and I'll tell you what's going to happen if, if we don't start doing some things now. So do you want that or do you not want that, right? And if you don't care, then okay, well, at least at least you know. Like I had this one woman uh, who was just didn't want to take blood pressure medicine, didn't want to take cholesterol medicine, didn't want to take, you know, and she was living this kind of like busy life. And, her, you know, and I said, look, you have to get on medicine. Like you have a genetic high cholesterol, you have genetic high blood pressure. And she's like, I'm not going to do it. And then, and there's a new test that came out recently um, by a proteomic test, and we did it on her, and it said that you know it, it's got a pretty good predictor of your four-year risk of a heart attack. So now we have the data. Now we can look at protein patterns, and we can do this AI analysis back tested by biobanks in the UK and England. I mean, in uh, Japan and in Iceland. And I said, look, you're going to have a heart attack in the next eight years. Pretty sure you're going to have one. So when it happens, please don't call me up wondering why it happened or how it happened. It's going to happen unless we do a drastic change. She was, she's more of the hippy dippy, didn't want to take meds because it's the, the medical system is going to, you know, they're just making money off it. I'm like, they're going to make a lot more money off your heart attack. Um, so I think that the, the big mistake people make is they, they underestimate how much they drink. They underestimate how, how much sleep is, is important and they don't take that seriously. I try to sleep eight hours every night. Like I'm pretty religious about that. I try to never wake up with an alarm clock so that my cortisol levels at the lowest before it spikes when I wake up in the morning. We can talk more about that later. There's all sorts of little hacks that I do. I don't think they eat enough fiber. I think they think they eat healthy diets, but they don't. Um, you know, so, I, you know, and I think the levels of stress in their lives are, are they diminish how much that is a, uh, a lever for what they call inflammaging. Right, chronic inflammation is what leads to aging faster than you should. What causes chronic inflammation is high cortisol levels, stress, not sleeping, you know, running around, traveling too much, and like 
the here and now is really valuable, the present tense, but nobody lives in the present tense. They, they're all living in some future state or some past state, and that causes stress. So I don't think people, I think those are the common mistakes they make. Did that answer the question? It did. It did. No, thank you. Um, and I wonder about, I wonder about being too busy. This, 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 it, it, these th things are all kind of tying together, right? Because I think it all comes back to wanting to be right. <laughs> Honestly, it does. Right? It's like, well, I'm living this way, and I want, and I don't want to feel wrong about it. So I'm going to go find a, a a website that tells me that actually like five glasses of wine per night is actually good for you. You know, yeah, it's wine. from Zeratrol. It's, yeah. it's got it's got <laughs> you know phenols in it. Um, and I'm even I'm even seeing myself do this right in my own mind right now. I'm like, well, yeah, that's it's good to get that amount of sleep, but I wake up and I exercise, so that doesn't apply to me. But I'm doing it myself right in this exact moment. Um, and and your point about stress is interesting too, right? Because, you know, it, we both interact with like lots of high performers, right? People who do ungodly amounts of work, right? Yep. And and are, are very successful. Um, and what we see is, and and you know, what we see is what that what the results of that are now and in the next you know year or two. What we don't see is what long term impact that stress level has on on health. Right. I mean, I have the luxury of being in practice now for 25 years, and I, I have been taking care of people for a long time, I mean, at least 25 years uh, for some of them, and I, I I get to ride shotgun with them through their lives. And and then I get younger people, I'm like, hey, I've seen this movie before. Like, you can tell yourself a different story, or you can kind of like, not necessarily snap to grid, because you know you have to give people programs that, that fit within you know their, their paradigm. Whatever that paradigm is, everyone's got different paradigms. But you got to constantly remind people that, you know, you've got to, do you want to enter your 50s feeling like you did when you were 40? Or do you want to feel like you're 60? And and it's hard for people to imagine their future selves. It just is. Um, you know, I think everyone envisions they're going to be rich and famous and successful. They, they have this like, but they don't they don't think about how their, their physical structure and their engines and their metabolism is going to be because... There's no van there's no vanity in that unless you have a six pack and like, you know, then there's plastic surgery and Botox. Oh, I'll I'll pretty my face up later. It's like, well, actually you could have a pretty face. Like my wife's turning fifty uh this month, and she looks like she's like I mean, she's always worn a hat, she wears sunscreen, she really takes care of herself. She doesn't drink that much, she exercises, yoga. People think she's thirty. I'm like, okay, but she's had a, she's always been on that path ever since she was younger. It's like, I'm not gonna I'm gonna really take care of myself. So you, it, that's a conscious choice, and you, it's actually a, a bit of a practice. But a lot of people just think, well, I'll just fix it later. And, right. and it doesn't work like that. Right. A human body is not a, a, a car, right. you know, that you can just change the, the engine or right. replace a cylinder. I mean, yes, we're getting to the place where you can do a knee replacement and you can do a heart, but you don't want to do that. Like, keep what you got as long as you want. I, I tell my kids, just, just floss the ones you want to keep, right? <laughs> you don't have to floss, but just floss the ones you want to keep. <laughs> So speaking of, of, of high performers and, um, you know, success, you, you know, you've been remarkably successful and you're, I, I've, I, you know, classify you as a high performer. Um, but maybe you could tell us a little bit about like the founding story of private medical and kind of like, you know, how that, how that journey kind of started for you. Yeah. So my father was a surgeon, like I said earlier, <clears throat> chief of surgery in San Francisco. So he was cut it out and next 
You know, he was very <laughs> transactional. And my mother got her PhD in psychology and family counseling, which was let's sit down and talk about it forever. Right. So I had these two uh, influences, my both healers, uh, completely opposite in terms of their approach to, to how to solve a problem. And ultimately, as my father said, doctors are just problem solvers. Right. And, and my mom would, would agree with that. Um, so I trained in San Francisco uh, and finished my residency in 1997. And at that time, the uh, Federal Trade Commission was investigating Brown and Toland for, a, for, a, for an antitrust lawsuit. They had too many covered lives. And there was another uh, medical group called uh, the Hill Medical Group, kind of based out of the East Bay, that was trying to compete with the IPA of Brown and Toland, which is a IPA. And basically, my father was on the board of Brown and Toland. And, you know, I grew up in the Brown and Toland when the HMO universe kind of arose. And I was told that when I finished my training, I could not get the medallion, like an HMO medallion that would let you take HMO patients. So I thought, well, what am I going to do? Wait, well, why, why? Well, because in order to take Blue Cross HMO back then, you, you needed Blue Cross needed to give you the, the medallion, but they would give the medallions to the IPAs, the physician groups, and the physician would hand them out to those people. So if you, so in, in 1997, San Francisco was 85% HMO, 50% PPO. If you didn't have an HMO thing, you, you were not going to see 85% of the population. That you just couldn't, you couldn't, ha you couldn't handle it. I, I mean, you couldn't make your way. There was no business. So I was told I could practice in Modesto, Bakersfield, or uh, Vallejo. Um, and, and my whole family's from San Francisco, and I grew up in San Francisco. And I was like, yeah, no, <clears throat> staying here. So they found a doctor um, in the financial district in San Francisco, far away from the hospitals. Because back then, the hospital ecosystem, the doctors, the hospital, it was very much a collegial, like everybody knew everybody. They, they, they had lunch together in the doctor's lounge. You know, this was as the HMOs were starting to eat away at everybody's soul, but th th it hadn't really happened yet, but it was in evolution. I, I mean, I had a front row seat to it. So there was a doctor in downtown San Francisco who said, hey, he's 80, all, you can join my practice, uh, and uh, and I'll, I have an HMO medallion, but I also have a lot of PPOs. I'm in the 23rd floor of a financial district building, so I've got good views. You know, most doctor's offices like are drab things with no views. And he said, but you're going to make $60,000 a year. You're going to be on call every night for one year. I'm going to take a week, a month off and with my wife and go to my Napa house. And at the end of the year, I'm going to retire and you can have this whole practice. So I thought, okay, it's just doing residency for a fourth year. I can do that. Um, I didn't live that far away. So I could walk to work. I lived in Telegraph Hill. And every day I walked to work and every day I couldn't go on dates because I couldn't have a beer because I was always on call and I was always super busy. <clears throat> and all my colleagues who had graduated made real money and I was making double a resident salary, but I was a cheap date. So I, it didn't really matter. Like, I, you know, <laughs> and ironically, I wound up in North Beach one day knocking, there was a restaurant that was being built and I knocked on the door and I said, who's the owner here? They're like, who are you? And I said, well, I'd like to talk to the owner. <clears throat> and so the owner shows up. I said, when's the restaurant going to be done? He said, in about two months. I said, do you provide healthcare insurance for any of the uh, employees here? He's like, no, we don't give health insurance to, you know, bartenders and waiters. I said, I'll be the doctor for all of your staff. You can offer them that benefit uh, in exchange for me coming here whenever I want and getting free food and, and, and getting to the front of the line because I could tell it was going to be a nice restaurant. <laughs> <clears throat> so, so I did that. So I became like – so then I went to a couple bars and a couple of the restaurants. So in North Beach, I kind of like – Oh, here's comes uh, the doorman, the bartender, the the janitor. Oh, here's my doctor. Come on in, whatever you want, you know. So I, like I said, I was a cheap date because I had a lot of barter things going on <laughs> um, while I was working at this job full time, and um, you know, 
I didn't really cook my own meals because I had this deal with all these restaurants. <laughs> um, so at the end of the year, I said to the guys, hey, it's time to negotiate our deal. And I need to get the lease. I got to get the employees. Like, you're retiring in a month. And, you know, there's lots of work to do in this last month. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, no, I like this arrangement. Can we do this for another couple of years or at least a year? And I literally saw red. I, I was like, there's no effing way that that just came out of your mouth. And, and I didn't say that, but I thought that. And he said, look, I'll double your pay and uh, you can take call half of the year. And I was like, no, 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 no. I just spent another year of indentured servitude here. And, um, and there's just no way. Bait and switch. Bait and switch. And, and so I called my father and he said, how did, how did your negotiation go? And I said, I told him. And so anyway, I told the guy to F off and I quit and I grabbed my bag and I walked out the door. And then my dad called me. He goes, how did the negotiation go? I said, I told him to F off and I grabbed my bag. And my dad's like, didn't I teach you anything, son? Didn't you negotiate? I mean, you're not supposed to do that. You're supposed to like, I said, dad, I spent a year. I did exactly what I said I was going to do. And this guy absolutely did not do what he said he was going to do. And, and he pushed back hard enough that I couldn't, I couldn't see anything. So I left. So my dad said, what are you going to do? I had rent to pay. Like, I had no job at that moment. And, and, and I said, I don't know. He said, well, don't ask me for money. Like, you figured this out. I said, well, I think I'm going to go back to school. I'll go, I'll go to business school. Like, I'm kind of like entrepreneurial blood in our family. So maybe I'll do something like that. He said, nope. He said, well, go for it. But I don't know how you're going to get there from here. So I said, well, just, you know, Dad, I just had a rough day. Let me figure some stuff out. So I walked down the street on uh, Pine and Sansom in San Francisco down. And normally I would walk to work. I'd walk home. I was busy. I was on the, uh, the whole time. Like I never like, had time to think. Um, so I sat down in a little cafe and I sat my butt down and I ordered a cup of tea because it was an Asian-themed uh, 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 place. And then I looked around. I'm like, wow, this is a fancy Asian-themed place. And it was the Mandarin Oriental Hotel. So I was like, wow. I, I never stayed at five-star hotels growing up. We were kind of a Marriott, you know, four-star, whatever. I, we weren't right, upper middle class. My dad kind of <clears throat> moved to California. His grandfather, his father came from Eastern Europe with nothing. So we were a frugal-ish family. And so then I was like, huh, this is an interesting place. The people are fancy here. Like they're dressed up really nice. And the, so the concierge desk was in my line of sight. And I looked at the concierge desk and I saw people you know, ask, you know, in, engaging with all these people and they had hat boxes that they were shipping back to London. And I said, where am I? So I walked up to the concierge desk and this is like my innovation but irritation moment because I was irritated at what just happened to me. So I walked up to the concierge desk and I said, excuse me, who's the doctor that your guests see when someone gets sick here? And the woman looked at me, kind of paused. She goes, who are you? I said, well, I could be the doctor that you call when someone gets sick here. And she goes, you're a doctor? And I was literally 29, so I looked like I was 20. I said, but I, I had a suit and a tie on because I saw I, I dressed up when I saw patients. And um, she said, you're really a doctor? I said, I am. She said, doctor, with all due respect, this is a five-star hotel. And everything we do here, from the linens to the lunches to the limos, is five-star service. She said, I'm just a concierge, so I may be just three-star smart. But what we do here is five-star service. She said, if you're a doctor, you're probably five-star smart. But your industry is one-star service. And there is no way I'm going to let any one-star service doctor take care of my guests in this five-star environment. And I said, could you teach me what five-star means to you? And she said, well, prove to me you're a doctor first. So I went home. And I made a medical chart, like I took a medical chart that I had. And I, you know, the tabs that used to say history, labs, radio. So, and I made that my resume. And I, and I had my, all my certifications and my malpractice things. And I went back a couple of days later and I said, here's 
I'm a doctor. You can call the medical society, you can call the hospital, you can call anybody. I'm known in town. She said, okay. So she goes, let me teach you about five-star service. And so the next thing you know, she goes, like, look, it's really simple. It's all common sense. It's listening. It's follow-up. It's follow-through. It's, 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 it's empathy. It's, you know, reading the room, understanding people's, you know, what, what they're all about. Um, and then it's follow-up and follow-through. And, you know, with, with a smile. And never let – never be bothered by people's interactions, which – you know, I learned that in medicine anyway because you saw these sick people. You couldn't, you, know, you couldn't have a schizophrenic. You couldn't get mad at them, right? Because they lost their mind or they they were in the process of like having a break. But even if someone was really had a fever and pneumonia and they're yelling at you, you understand that that they're not themselves. So, you know, a good doctor knows how to like distance themselves. So the next thing you know, I'm making house calls to um, members of the uh, Mandarin Oriental and getting paid like three hundred dollars in cash, or you know, or credit card. Now, meanwhile, like two weeks earlier, I was getting $5 copays that people were really unhappy about giving. And, and I was really, wow, what, what is this? And then I realized that if you feel value in what your service you're getting, you're happy to pay. If you don't see value in the service you're getting, you hold on to that $5 bill like it's a $100 bill, that copay. Like people would literally sneak out of our office before we give us the copay and when I was seeing with the old guy. Um, so then anyway, next thing you know, I was making, you know, doing like a house call or two a week. It's a thousand dollars, and you know, like that's two thousand dollars, you know, a, a month. You know, it's not that much, but so I, but I realized, like, wait a minute. I, but by the way, I had no, I had nothing but free time on my hands. So then I went to the Ritz Carlton, and I said, "Hey, who's the doctor that you see when someone gets sick?" And they said, "Who are you?" And I said, "Well, I'm the doctor to the Mandarin." They said, "You are." They called down. Is it true? Is this guy good? He's good. And I bought a little Vespa scooter and I had a little doctor bag and I was hustling all around town. And then I went to every Four Seasons, the Ritz Carlton, the I mean the the, uh, the W and and all the hotels. And within two years, I had seven doctors working for me. We had a multi million dollar uh, house call business. And and not only and, and by the dot com boom was going bananas, right? So all these CEOs of these tech companies, you know, Webvan. Remember those days? Or maybe you don't. But yeah. it was a, it was a whole. They they would you know they would call me on as their private doctor. So I was going seeing individuals in their homes and like all, we had all these doctors and and it was an amazing business. And I and I really learned um, what it was like to build a business and be responsible for a P and L and not take insurance. But you know, quality was everything. If one of our doctors had a you know, d- did something that was like less than five star. I would hear about it. I'd have to sit down with the doctor and be, "Hey, y- you know that that's not how we comport ourselves here." It was called San Francisco On Call Medical Group. That was a SF On Call, was what it was called. And and then, of course, September 11th happened. Uh, the stock market crashed on the tech boom in San Francisco in 2001, and we went from like three million dollars a year to zero. And that's when I was like, "Holy moly! How am I gonna?" What am I, you know, I laid everybody off, but but my the pediatrician that I still work with today. And I said, what are, what are we, what are we going to do? And I'm like, we're going to start a subscription service for people who live here. And and, and we're going to build with all of our know-how. And I still had a big office in Union Square. We had we had a we had a full capabilities, but there was just no customers. And and slowly a couple of people signed up and they told their friends and then we said we're going to sign up families because we had a pediatrics and internal medicine. And, and, you know, it's been a 20-year journey since that moment. Today, this is our 20th year at Private Medical, which was the new company that we started in 2002 out of the ashes of SF on call, which went from 98 to, <laughs> to 2000, end of 2001 or 2002. Um, and now we have offices in San Francisco, Silicon Valley, uh, uh, 
Beverly Hills, uh, New York. We're opening up one in Miami, another one in uh, Brentwood or Santa Monica area. And, you know, we're growing at the speed of quality and we have 28 doctors and, and we are part of these people's lives. And we, I've brought all of the know-how and the, going back to this intellectual humility of how do you continue to build something as the world's changing around you, acknowledging you have to, you know, you have to let go of some things that you really love doing because like that's not what the market wants and that's not what the science says and that's not what, like what's good for work-life balance. So it's, it's this constant continuously learning. It, I, I think of us as a little mini academic medical center, but it all started back from that concierge back in 1998. And what's interesting, to put a capo on the story, is from 1998, probably till 2000 and, I don't know, seven, I would take all the concierge from the Mandarin out to any restaurant they wanted to in San Francisco. So thank you for kicking off this totally random career that I had no idea was my, my, my career. Um, and so I got to know all the concierges and, and the one, that woman, Sharice, the head one, um, then, you know, then I started having kids and I kind of lost touch with some of them. I always stayed in touch with Sharice. And she called me up probably five years ago and said, hey, the Mandarin Oriental is getting bought by Lowe's and we're going to be a four-star hotel. And, and, and she goes, I'm, I'm like, I don't know what to do with myself. I said, let's, let's go out for a drink. Yeah, so I took her out for a drink and, and she was beside herself. And I said, you know what, Sharice, why don't you come work for me? And why don't you head up the um, member experience? And why don't you help train the doctors and the nurses and the patient coordinators what the five-star method is? So I hired her five years ago, and, and now she's rose up. She's the director of admissions, and she runs like a, you know, a non-trivial part of, of our practice. But she's like the North Star of service that all of our practice, we're 150 people now that we all look to. And, you know, she's, she's happier, you know, she's happy as a clam and like – it's payback, right? Like she helped me and now I'm helping her and now we're helping each other and I work with her every day and it's fantastic. So I, I, I you know, loyalty matters. I think going back to trust is we, we really, you know, believe in trust and relationships and, you know, going back to earlier in the conversation, trust is honesty, authenticity and benevolence over time. And if you just keep doing that, you build trust. And when you build trust, it creates a it creates a valence of attraction, right? Distrust is a valence of, you know, a positive and negative or a positive and a positive. You, you, they go away. And, you know, with the people that we take care of and our members and even my staff, like, I want trust to be the, the currency. And I think if you grow too fast, you can lose trust. I think if you grow too slow, you can lose trust because, like, what, what, why aren't we being managed well? Why isn't this organization going well? So I like to say that we grow at the speed of quality and trust and everything through the lens of safety and efficacy on the on the patient side but but it's really a culture of 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 trust and safety and empathy um, and it you can feel it in every person at the company and and by the way medicine is a pretty heavy uh, field to be in like there's a lot of illness and cancer i got two emails today about a new two new cancer diagnoses today and like that's heavy heavy stuff for them, for me, we have to organize the family. What do we do? Who's the best? And like, is this the right plan of action? Every every decision is a, do I go right, left, straight, backwards, you know, stand still? How, how do you manage this all? But if there's a lot of trust, it's really easy, really easy to navigate that with someone because they know that you have their best interests in mind, 100%. So th these are the things that I think, So so with all that gravity, What's the countervailing force of gravity? It's levity, right? And so I think having a sense of humor, finding ways to bring lightness into heavy conversations in a skillful way, 
is really it's a it's a it's a therapeutic thing to do. So so we do encourage our physicians and our nurses like don't make everything like super serious. Like the things that are super serious, make them super serious. But if they're not super, have a little bit of lightness in them. Like try to infuse lightness in every interaction where that's not super serious. So that when that serious moment comes, there's a basis of levity kind of intermixed with the gravity of it all. Because that's I think they call it the art of medicine. It's an art form. Like it's not just, you know, an AI bot saying, here's your diagnosis, here's your treatment plan, go. You need to interface with people to get those treatments and you need to interface with people to understand what it means and what's next. And I think a, a chat bot is, it, you know, gets you somewhere, but, uh, you know, it doesn't get you that far. So I think the promise and the hype of all this digital health stuff, and I did start a digital health company, so I was at the front edge of that. There's a place for it. It's a, it's a tool for people to help people. And one of the quotes that I said when I started Health Loop is, is health uh, uh, care is a people business that needs technology. It is not a technology business that needs people. And a lot of the tech companies like started businesses, we got to fund people to put into this technology, <laughs> you know, and it's like, okay, I get it. There's a lot of enthusiasm, but that's not what medicine is. Like we've all had someone who's dying or sick or someone who's been through a lot, like tech can help as a tool to make the experience better, but it is not the thing that's going to save us all. Right. There's an art and a science. There's the right brain. There's the left brain. That's your mom and your dad. That's right. Um, such such a powerful story, <clears throat> um, and that it started with, you know, the worst experience. One of the worst experiences of your life, right? Professionally, it sounds like. Yeah. Um, this big disappointment. This big, you know, this 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 moment of conflict of and, and anger and sadness and disappointment, leading to this. Um, epiphany and this, this, I, you know, this kind of new direction for you. Well, I think, um, I think that incredible. some people who have like major existential moments, like I did, you can, you can go into like a rage, you can go into like a sadness. You, you, there's all these depths, there's all these gullies that you can go into. Um, and, and it's hard to see a lot of light in those gullies. Like I, you know, we've all been to a place where someone's betrayed us fundamentally and we're wrong. And we can't just be right again. Like a lot of times when we're wrong, we, you know, this is coffee. No, it's not. It's tea. No, it's coffee. It's tea. And then you taste it. And you're like, I was wrong. Now I'm right. Like you can switch to being wrong instantly. So most people never live in being wrong for more than a nanosecond because they're immediately right once they're proven wrong, once they grok it. Unless you've had this type of, a, like someone cheated on you or someone betrayed you, then you have to live in the wrong for a long time. So I think for those that wind up in those ditch, like I happened to like, okay, I'm going to take a deep breath. And I didn't let myself go into the ditch. I, I, I wanted to like, think about what, like, I wanted to just think about everything but that ditch. And that's when I was looked around and I was just super curious. And I just looked at everything. I'm like, what's going on over there? What's going on over there? Let me, let me ask a question, you know? And I, and, and I think that, you know, since Berkeley's right behind me here, um, you know, I studied philosophy and physiology at Berkeley and, Physiology, science, wants to ask what is um, – we all want to get the answer right. In science and in scientists and mathematicians, we all just want to get the answer right. And we don't want to be wrong like we were talking about earlier. Um, but the philosopher doesn't care about what the answer is. They care about what the question is and they want to get the question right. And if you think about it, okay, there's the question. How much time do we spend on the question? Now, in medical school and in science class, all we cared about was – getting the answer right. You know, we were given the question and we never questioned the question. And I think in life, when someone's given, when the question comes up, we immediately try to, to you know, 
get the answer right. And we spend a lot of time on the answer. But imagine if you got the right answer to the wrong question. Is it the right answer or is it not? Like, I don't know, but I'm guessing it's probably not or it's, or it's directionally way off base from what it is. So I think it's important for people to, whenever they're in a ditch, just start asking questions. Don't, don't start pointing fingers. Don't start pointing fingers at yourself, shame, blame other people. Like that's easy. That's the path of least resistance. Like the more enlightened way out of a ditch is to start asking questions about your environment, about what's going on, maybe about what happened. Um, but I think leaving the, 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 the situation and, and freeing yourself from like what happened because you can't change it and start asking questions about what's around you and what's, you know, it, it gives you an opportunity to not think about this kind of depth, the, this dark place that you could go. And it starts forcing you to start thinking about like answers to questions like, is that the right question? And I think I just wound up sitting there at this cafe, super depressed and like having an excellent chance. I'm like, you know what? I'm just gonna look around and not think about what just happened. And then I'm like, okay, where am I? Like, oh, I'm in a fancy place. Oh, and now the good news is I did have a little bit of that kind of moxie from going to the bars and restaurants when I was not making any money to try to like find a way to get, you know, food and go on dates and not pay for it because I didn't have the money. You know? <laughs> so I, I, at least I had some understanding of how to, how to like ask for something and not be ashamed or be afraid. And, you know, questions are always, you know, the answer to any question, whether it's right or wrong, is like data that you can right. put into your question making machine and maybe ask another question or learn something. Right. Like getting curious and, and, and noticing things. I mean, that kind of reminds me too of meditation a little bit, right? Where you're just kind of like noticing different sounds, different how your body's feeling, things like that, like mm -hmm. that curiosity. But I, I think it's good for people to keep in mind that, you know, when bad things happen, like could be the best thing that ever happened to you, right? Like I, I often think about like the opportunities missed, you know, the the jobs you didn't get, the, th the, the, the things that didn't work out could be the best thing that never happened to you. A hundred percent. I really feel that, you know, life, you know, is, is a Sisyphusian exercise. You push the ball up the hill, it rolls down there. There's always an up and always a down. Always. You have to embrace the up. You have to embrace the down. You can't just embrace one and like wallow in the other one. They always happen. And, and even in the downs, like you said, there's something, it happened for a reason. And if you're curious enough to ask about what all, like, what was my responsibility? What was the macro universe problem? What was the person in front of me's responsibility? Just start asking questions and you may not get the answers, but the questions will lead to other questions. And, and then you get a little bit of comfort in, in realizing like, okay, this was not completely in my, my fault or I shouldn't be feeling that bad. And maybe, you know, and then something always good comes from, you know, trauma or, bad experiences most of the time. I mean, obviously if you're dealing with like sexual abuse and like these hardcore things, like, you know, that's just stone cold bad news and evil and people suffer the rest of their lives. It's hard to find your way out of like that. Although, you know, going back to medicine, there's a lot of promising, you know, uh, uh, discoveries in, in the, in the psych plant-based psychedelic world of like, how do you get these thoughts that are rooted in trauma with PTSD and how do you break those 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 cycles of thought and there looks like there's some promise with ketamine and and some some of these psychedelics to help people through the PTSD from war or, or, or domestic violence and all this stuff. Indeed. Um, I, I wanted to ask you a little bit more about your dad a little bit because sure. um, I understand you know not only was he a surgeon he was an author 
Um, and I guess I wanted to ask you two things. One was um, just generally that influence and how that steered you towards or away from you know, the idea of being a doctor. And then the second piece is, it, it sounds like um, from what I've read, you know, towards the end of his life, you, you and your siblings came together to help your, your father with a project. And I'd love to just learn a little bit more about yeah, so, his influence. So, so great, great. Uh, love talking about my dad. He was an amazing human being. He, um, you know, he always used to say when I was a kid, son, character is destiny. And, and I always used to, like, Dad, like, when I was three and four and five, and then every year we hear that a bunch of times. I'm like, he had all these little isms. And, uh, and I never really understood what that meant. I mean, I do now. Um, and I'm glad he kind of, like, made me wonder what that meant for a long time. And he always also used to say, son, he liked baseball and I liked baseball. He's like, what's a good batting average? I said, well, 300. He's like, what's a great batting average? Maybe 350. You know, I don't think anybody did much more than that for a sustained period of time. He said, think about life as every decision you make is your batting average. Like, what is your batting average on, on decisions you make? Are they good ones? Is it a hit? Or are they bad ones, which is a strikeout? Right? And, and so I've always kind of thought, like, how's my batting average? Like, so in order to make better decisions, you have to learn from the bad ones, which means that you have to, like, ask questions, going back to being curious. Um, so he was always that type of influence. And he was also, like, an amazing artist. He wrote books. But he told me when I was right out of the crib, he picked me up. I started crying. He looked at me and goes, son, you can be whatever you want when you grow up as long as you're a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so, and I heard that every year. So I actually didn't know I, I had a choice. And he told that to my sisters too. They eventually bucked the trend and one's an artist and one's a filmmaker, now an artist. <clears throat> but I just was like, I guess I'm doing what dad said, you know, because that's what dad said. And, you know, my mom was like, eh, that's what they do, I guess. <laughs> Son of immigrant kind of a thing. And so, so I didn't have a choice. Like, or at least I didn't think I did. But I also like science. I, I like, you know, I, was, I saw him as this model of like, he had autonomy in his life. He had respect in his life. He had made a good living. He could provide for his family. He was around enough. I'm like, that seems like a good jam. Like I'll, I'll, I'll get into that flow. Of course, when I came out, like medicine had turned upside down and HMOs ate the world and doctors became, you know, tenants of REITs, which are hospitals, um, you know, more or less, which were like big private equity firms. Like nobody knew that as the doctor, you're just trying to do good. Um, but yeah, he wrote um, when, when he was, um, so I was always into science and technology. So I said, hey dad, there's this new company called Apple. They just made a computer called the Apple II. I want to buy one and learn how to program. This was in 1979. Um, and he said, what does it do? I said, well, it's like you can program, you can make games, and you can, like, you know, I was learning how to play, make Pong and Space Invader games. And he said, well, is it a typewriter? And I'm like, yeah. He said, well, if it's a typewriter, does it, how do you type on a screen and have it go to paper? I'm like, well, you have a printer attached to it. He said, I'm going to buy you a computer and a printer. And you can do all the, and I'll, you know, you can take whatever programming classes you want, but um, I'm going to dictate into a little dictaphone thing on my way to work and on my way home, and I'm going to give you this little cassette, and every day you're going to type what I what I wrote, what I said, and I'll pay you like $5 an hour, whatever. I'm like, great. And I was learning how to do typing in high school, so I was, you know, AAA, BBB, you know, remember the typing classes. So I wound up typing this book for him called Art and Physics, Parallel Visions in Space, Time, and Light, which was a history of art and a history of physics, left brain, right brain, and was the artist, the clairvoyant describing the world through canvas and, and, and sculpture to the scientist, which is describing the world in formula and um, 
and equations. So I'm like 13 or 14, and I typed this super heady book on the entire history of art and the entire history of physics. So I typed it up, and you know, it became a national uh, New York Times bestseller, and he did a book tour, and he became super famous, and then he wrote a bunch of other books. And it wasn't until, I, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago in my 30s or 40s where like I somehow knew everything about the history of art and the history of physics, and I didn't really know how. I never took <laughs> courses in this stuff. <laughs> Um, you know, but I could speak somewhat fluently about like, you know, cubism and and, and pontalism and, and you know, abstract art. And, you know, so so I thank him for, for giving me the privilege to, to write that book or I didn't write it. I typed it, full, full disclosure. <laughs> right. um, but then he, um, in his fourth book was called Leonardo's Brain. He basically said that Leonardo da Vinci, he was obsessed with neuroscience. He said Leonardo da Vinci was probably the only person in modern history that could have won a Nobel Prize in science and a Nobel Prize in art. Um, so his brain must have been very different than the average brain. He said, so his book called Leonardo's Brain, which he was writing, was basically a posthumous theoretical MRI image of what his brain must have looked like, what the regions of his brain must have, the architecture of them must have been for him to be that so versed in art and science. And even he had uh, uh, what could, he could see from a distance. I forgot, I forgot what it's called. But um, So his brain was like this antenna also kind of a thing. Um, so as you – and my father's name was Leonard. And as he was writing Leonardo's brain – and my father was a kind of a modern-day Leonardo da Vinci because he, he brought laparoscopic surgery to the United States. He invented a bunch of uh, instruments, the very first laparoscopic uh, tools. He was writing books. He, he wrote on canvas. He was an amazing oil painter. Uh, he wrote poetry. He – was just this kind of renaissance type of guy. And while he's writing a book called Leonardo's Brain, our Leonardo got a brain tumor. So my dad got a brain cancer. And, um, you know, when you when you get diagnosed with a GBM, pretty much whatever age you are, you've got like nine months, the clock is ticking or less, no more in general. I know there's some pretty interesting um, things on the horizon now. But so he's like, shit, I've got nine months to write this book and I hope I can live longer. So we, of course, fired up the engines and talked to neuroscience, neurosurgeons and all around the country. And we tried everything. And, you know, he died nine months later. But um, literally uh, three weeks before he died, um, you know, he was reading. He finished the book and, you know, he had to get the, the edits in. And, and he said, I am not dying until this book is done. And me and my sisters like literally helped edit. We did everything we could. He finished the book, and about 36 hours later, once he pressed send on the, on the editors, and everybody agreed, he died 36 hours later. And um, and the capo to that story, which is also incredible, is my sister, my little sister Tiffany, who's a filmmaker, um, had done something in the background that nobody knew. So at his funeral, at his service, you know, I was going to read a eulogy. My sister was going to do a eulogy. His wife was going to do a eulogy. Um, we're at the synagogue, and it's a thousand people, and it was like packed. It was like lines. People, he was he was beloved, and he had a lot of followers for all of his books. He wrote a lot on women, um, and and why women are in society where they are because of language, because of because of biology. Um, the one book is called The Alphabet Versus the Goddess. The other one is Sex, Time, and Power. At his funeral, they said, hey, before we start the uh, memorial service, uh, Dr. Schlein would like to say something. And I was like, wait, I'm not going till third. Like, I'm not saying nothing. I was like, I was torn up. My dad died. I Like, I, I wasn't going to say anything. And all of a sudden, the, the temple went dark and the screen came down. And there, the, my sister had a projector. And there on his screen, 
like for everyone to see, big screen, like a movie screen, was my dad wearing a white suit and a white top hat with clouds in the background moving by. And he goes, hey, everybody, it's me. And I've always wanted to be at my own funeral. So he had Whoa. prepared before he died on a green screen with my sister filming like a 10-minute him saying goodbye to everybody and telling Whoa. about his life. And, and, and it, was a, it was a state secret. So I didn't know. My sisters didn't know. Nobody knew except for my dad and my little sister. And, and so this was his amazing way to like be present at his own, at his own memorial. And, you know, I mean, there wasn't a dry eye in the place. And, yeah. and um, it was pretty fantastic. And so. that was after his diagnosis. So he knew. Like, it was like, well, I think he fought pretty hard and he thought like, you know, like everybody, I'm going to beat this. And then I think after like four or five months when he realized he couldn't beat it, my sister's like, hey, let's, yeah, let's, yeah. let's, let's put something together here just in case you don't make it. And, you know, cause he always joked when we were growing up, I'm going to give, uh, you know, I'm going to be at my own memorial. And we didn't know what he meant. <laughs> and then he was, and it was fantastic. It was spectacular. Oh, wow. Wow. What an unbelievable story. That's, that's unreal. Um, Thanks for sharing that with me. That's, yeah, uh, no, it's, um, it's very personal, but um, but it, it sounds like you know he's a very powerful force in your in your life. Yeah, and and not to just not to take away from my mother, who was Correct. an incredibly powerful <laughs> force in my life, but she, you know, she got her PhD in in psychology when I was in high school. So she was getting her PhD was I was taking my final. So she's a badass in her own right, and she went on to build this you know marriage and family counseling career. Um, I mean, she was a social worker before that for for kids with disabilities. But she wound up doing groups and taking care of people. And she wound up, it was funny, there was a time in my career when I was doing SF on call and even the early private medical, where if someone needed surgery, I'd call my dad and he'd fire up the OR and surgery would happen. And if I needed therapy for somebody, I'd call my mom up and she'd get them in and she'd get them sorted out. And, you know, my mom's still around, my dad's not. And we talk all the time. And I'm, I said to her, my mom the other day, what's the, what's the number one lesson, you know, that you've learned? from being a marriage and family counselor to, to like hundreds and thousands of people, and hundreds of thousands, hundreds, maybe and thousands. And she said, it's really simple. She goes, you can be right or you can be in a relationship. <laughs> and it just starts there, going back to being right. Like nobody wants to be wrong. And if you, if you just wanna be right, that relationship's not, not gonna last. So the, you know, it's, it's all about kind of intellectual humility, intellectual curiosity and and just, you know, engaging in a dialogue that we're just sometimes right and sometimes wrong and finding our place in, in that equilibrium. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. Um, I, I would, <clears throat> I was, uh, I have to give a shout out to my friend Rob because um, when I was in college, my, my, my friend Rob had this like long-term, you know, um, girlfriend who ended up becoming his wife. And I remember I, <clears throat> I, I, uh, I was in an argument with uh, with my my girlfriend at the time, and I called him up and I was like, "Well, you know, she says this, blah blah." And he was like, "Oh, he was like, oh yeah, you know, he's listening to me." And he's like, "Yeah, I got the solution to your problem." I was like, "What? What is it?" He was like, "You just say, baby, I'm sorry, and I was wrong." <laughs> and I was like, "No, aren't you listening to my story? Like, you know, I was right." And I was, and he was like, "Dude, you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I was wrong, and I'm sorry." And uh, and uh, you know. 20 years later, it's, it's still, it's still true. Um, but yeah, no, it, it, it does, it does come back to people wanting to be right, wanting to protect their ego, not having that disassociation of, um, belief system, the, the belief system. And like, am I, am me being right is not me. That's right. It's just, it's just a belief. And by the way, beliefs are just hypotheses. Like everything you believe is a hypothesis. 
it's what you believe. That's why it's called a belief. I mean, it, it, you know, I mean, sadly, truth is now more of an adjective than a noun these days with alternative facts and, 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 and deep fakes. Like we don't know if when someone says that's true, if they're saying noun versus adjective, right? And, and that's, that's where language kind of messes everything up a little bit. So speaking of beliefs, um, wanted to ask you a few questions about your beliefs. And sure. um, one of the, my favorite questions is like, what's something you believe that you think is contrarian or something that uh, others don't believe as much? Great question. I believe that uh, the human dimension, the human spirit, the human will, whatever circumstance you're in, you can imagine something else and you can make that happen. And I, I know that, 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 that there's a lot of people that will say, well, that easy for you to say you weren't born in this situation and you, know, you weren't born under these circumstances. I just think that, that everything's possible. And, and if you really want to get out of a situation you're in, if you really want to change, you can. If, if you don't get out of your own way. And I think a lot of people, like, they hear that, but they don't really believe it. You know, and, and I like I've built something out of total scratch um, and I keep continuing to, to do that. And I think you can manifest the things that that you want to be in your life um, or you can attract, you know, and I think that's that's what I believe that you can manifest stuff to happen. Um, you can't try too hard, but I think you do have to be intentional a little bit about it. And I don't I don't think that you're stuck. I don't think, you know, or or like this was your lot in life. It is if you let it be. And if you don't believe it, it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. In a way, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> so I would say it's one of the things that um, – and, and I believe that that I think there's more good than, than evil in the world um, if, if we have to have a polarity system here. Um, even given what's going on today, I think that, that uh, altruism uh, wins the day every time. Mm. What, what makes you feel that way? Um, well, it's, it started with a book I read by E.O. Wilson, who is the um, recently passed away uh, uh, anthropologist out of Harvard. So he, he studied ants and bees and um, wasps, which are the only three other species that have social superstructures, complex structures of um, socialization and, and, uh, and uh, divisions of labor. And, you know, he lost an eye when he was a kid. So he had one eye and he, he liked looking at small things, right? And so he, he wrote a great book called uh, The Social Conquest of Earth, uh, which is a, more of a textbook. But if anybody wants to read it, it's good. He wrote another book, which is a shorter version of it, which is a kind of a summary of a lot of his books called uh, The Meaning of Human Existence, I think it's what it's called. Um, but he basically found that, um, you know, ants and Colonies of ants, they, they war and battle with other ones. And termites and, and bees, they, they have wars and they battle. Um, and what he found was is that larger groups of selfish ants, and he could determine which ants were selfish and which ones were altruistic by how much they helped each other in general tasks. Did this small group of ants build that bridge quickly? Did this group of ants build that bridge slowly because they were fighting with each other and like they weren't aligned in helping each other? This kind of benevolence concept. Um, is that the smaller groups of altruistic ants that had a battle with a much larger group of selfish ants won most all the time. Um, and I think, you know, one could, one could look at the Ukraine and, and they could look at, you know, Russia right now is like you have a small group battling a much bigger group, which, which groups is winning? 
like which groups are really looking out for each other and which groups just doesn't really care and they're just you know so so I believe that's why I, I mean fundamentally like I read that I don't know a decade ago the that and then you look around and you see that you see groups of people that like have each other's back and are helping each other seem to be thriving more and 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 again we don't really battle people there aren't like fights and wars and stuff like that but they they accomplish in a uh, adversarial business environment more than the bigger group that's selfish. So I think you can see it if you're looking for it. And ultimately, uh, you know, Wilson thinks there's an altruism gene. He, 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 you know, he died before it was discovered, but he, he hypothesized that there's a gene for altruism that, that bonds, binds people closer together. That resonates with me because, uh, you know, of the field I'm in, in venture capital, right? It's it's kind of, it's not exactly competition. It's not exactly like collaboration. It's co-optition. Right. And <clears throat> I've always found that, you know, having a pay it forward kind of mindset, having that like collaborative mindset actually gives you an edge in the long term. Yeah. Because like the sharp elbows, the, the shark, you know, sharks in the boardroom, they might win in the short term. But in the long term, it's like you don't want to do business with that person again. So. Right? Going back to what my dad said, character is destiny. Mm -hmm. And how you are is how you'll be. And if you're altruistic, if you're like showing that, you know, helping out, you're not being a, a douche, you know, all the time or whatever. Like if you're the douche, like you're going to wind up like alone and not a lot of people are going to want to hang out with you and you're not going to know why. And, and so I, I like to say you can make deposits into the bank of karma, but you can't make withdrawals. They just happen. Right. And so that doesn't, but you know, every time you do some goodwill, you're like, well, what, what did I get for that? Why did I do that? Well, don't worry about it. Like you did something good. And like that, that's what matters. It will come back at some point in some way, but you can't, if you're like keeping a ledger of what, what, you know, what you did good and what came back, you've lost the memo on why you're doing it. You need to be doing it altruistically. And, and then that comes back. And I th actually think it helps you manifest the things that you want to manifest. Um, people say to me, how come you know so many people? How come you can pick up the phone? And like, I'm like, I've done more favors for people. And I'm, I'm in a position where someone calls me, hey, doc, I need a favor. You know, like, I just say yes. And I help people through a, a tough situation here, there and everywhere. And I don't, I don't ask to get paid for that. Like I, like maybe I should have. And even if I should have, I don't know that that would have been non-altruistic because I still helped them. I just did it for free. Right. I mean, a lot of people say, stop doing that. But it comes back. But it comes back. Yeah. You get to call and you get to call someone else and, you know, hey, can you help me do something? And like, oh, sure. You know, but I don't, I don't do a favor for somebody and then put on a piece of paper like, nah, I have to wait to <laughs> wonder what. It's just like something arises. I'm like, oh, I know a guy who knows somebody or knows a woman who knows somebody who can help me out there. Like, you know, maybe I can call them up. And they're happy to take the call and they're happy to help out. So I think just doing good and doing, doing being that altruistic person is like the smartest business decision and the smartest human decision you can make is just be kind. You know, thank you costs nothing. You know, helping people costs nothing. It, it's just, it's free and, and it feels good. And there was actually just a study done, it's in my queue of things to read, that um, just on the benefits of kindness, like how it helps your stress levels and your energy levels by being kind to someone else, you actually are more resilient. Hmm. The journal of neuroscience. So, so, so I think that's, that's an important, um, important piece of the puzzle. I try to teach that to my kids. Let me ask you this. Is there a, is there a quote that you think about often, whether in times of struggle or, or otherwise? 
Yeah, it's the don't just uh, don't just stand there, do something. That's not it. It's don't just do something, stand there. I haven't heard that. Yeah. So in, unpack I think, that for me. <laughs> well, so in the modern world, it's like everyone everyone wants something done. Don't just stand there, do something. Come on, I'm waiting in line. Can you speed it up? No, 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 no. And, and it, you know, and so I think that like we, we we've gotten overwhelmed by this consumer culture and the speed of things getting faster. And we've just lost our sense that like time, you know, flows at the speed that it flows. And the more present you are, the slower it goes and then effectively more you have of it. This is a little bit of quantum theory, you know, if you, if you subscribe to it. But if you just slow down, uh, you, you can actually make better decisions going back to like what's your batting average of decisions. If you're just plowing through your day and and, and trying to you get stuff, you you're just you're 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 feeding into this sense of speed and efficiency. And I think that, you know, when you talk about efficiency, like if someone said is is inefficiency good? Uh, you know, versus efficiency. In the venture capital world, like you get booed out of the house if you say, I got a business that's gonna focus on inefficiency, right? Like that's not the business model. But but what we're doing right now is inefficient, right? It, it's like we're not getting anything done, like accomplishing. I mean, well, maybe we are, but like, you know, two people hanging out and, and, and not accomplishing something is inefficient. But it's human and it's amazing and its creativity is inefficient. Brainstorming sessions are inefficient. Um, you know, taking walks instead of sitting at your desk is inefficient. Uh, but you could be taking a walk, getting fresh air, and, you know, um, still being efficient, but being inefficient because then you have to walk back to your desk and you, you miss some time. So this concept of don't just do something, stand there is is like it, it plays out in medicine a lot where someone's like, hey, doc, like I've got a cold. What should you prescribe? I'm like, how about nothing? How about you have a cold? How about you have a cold? Like you don't need antibiotics because just because they all, that's, you know, that's what you've always gotten doesn't mean it's the right decision. Let's just sit with it. You got a virus. It's not a... But I have a cough and a fever. I'm like, yeah, that doesn't warrant antibiotics because antibiotics don't treat viruses. Like that's just like the super simple example. And you could you could play that out into a lot of other things where somebody just wants something done when in point of fact, maybe doing nothing was the was the right answer. Even arguing with somebody. Somebody wants to argue with you and they want you to argue back. Don't. Sit there with it a little bit and, and, and let, you know, and then you can process your thoughts before you go into an argument or a debate or a business meeting or whatever. So I think that's the one that I like a lot. Think about that one a lot. I like that too. I haven't heard that. But, it, you know, it's it's an interesting spin on something I, I have heard <clears throat> in that, you know, the quote I like is um, like a, it's, it's from like special forces or Navy SEALs or something, right? Which is um, slow is smooth and smooth is fast, right? Mm. But, right? Because like, if you try and do something fast, right, right, right. you're going to go end up going slower. If you try to go slow and smooth, you end up going faster. But the 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 moral of that quote is sort of like, well, being slightly less inefficient is actually more efficient. Right. But this is this is a twist on that, which is like, no, like let's be inefficient purposefully because there are other benefits outside of efficiency that are worthy. Right. I call it good. Efficiency and good inefficiency, and there's bad inefficiency and bad and good inefficiency. I mean, I've I've unpacked the four quadrants. The other quote I'm just realizing that is a good one. Is like, 
<clears throat> and this is what helps keep me sane and uh, is you'd care a lot less about what other people think about you when you realize they don't think about you. They're thinking about themselves. So a lot of people get caught up in their heads about like, what are all these people thinking about me? They're not. They're thinking about themselves. <laughs> They're not thinking about you. And, and so a lot of people get wound up in their head about like, oh my God, on Twitter, I mean, I'm not on social media much. I'm a, I post all the things I read on LinkedIn. I mean, that's my only kind of venue for like, I read probably five or 10 scientific things a day and I post maybe one or two every other day. Um, but, you know, sometimes you get a comment where like, yeah, it's a stupid article. What are you like? Okay, whatever. So you said it. You feel good? Like, I, I don't care. <laughs> like a lot of people are like, oh my God, like I got criticized in the public sphere. It's like, guess what? You put yourself in the public sphere. You didn't have to be on Twitter or Instagram or Facebook. Like if you, if you, you know, if you're, if you have thin skin, don't go there. And by the way, once they say something negative about you, it's probably a bot and they're probably off to the next thing then a second later, but you're spinning in some thing. So I think from a psychological standpoint, it's important to like not, you know, get all hung up on that. Totally. And it, and it goes beyond social media too, right? Which is, um, I, I, cause I, I, I take this back to risk taking, right? Mm -hmm. And a lot of people don't want to take <clears throat> risks because they're worried, well, what if I fail or what if it doesn't go the way I think it, what is all these people on my peers, all the people I went to school, what are they going to think? Reality is they're not thinking about you, right? No, <laughs> they're no, really not. No, they're not. <laughs> and if, if they think about you at all, it's in the context of how they're thinking about themselves, right? right. Which is, relevant. Yeah. Um, I got to ask you, okay. <laughs> let me, let me just ask you in closing about the future of health and the future of technology. Let's go out far into the future. What should we, we, we be worried about? What should we be excited about? What, what's it going to look like? So I want to distinguish two things, health and healthcare. Those are two separate concepts that we conflate all the time. Health is you and what you can do for yourself. Healthcare is when you can't and you need to go somewhere else. And you need to go to a doctor, a clinic, a lab. And so healthcare is when you can't do it on your own. Health is eating and sleeping and exercising and having good relationships and social integrations and like that's what you can do um so i think that the technology is going to bring us more clarity about our internal selves you know this concept of biological age versus chronological age which is right now like a really big rough draft and and people are selling it as though it's like the the truth and it's, we, we don't even know what we're talking about <clears throat> much but I think we'll start to get more insights into our biology and what influences them. So right now we know that, um, you know, kids eating ultra processed foods, like there was a study that was published just two days ago, that their brains are getting like, they're, you know, they're not like Swiss cheese, but they're, they're not normal kids' brains, which means that they're going to go to high school and not get a good education because they can't learn because they ate a bunch of crappy foods. It's like, why are we okay <clears throat> with feeding our kids? crappy food and like having big food, you know, create a whole industry called big pharma. Like at some point, we, you know, so I think that we'll get more insight with diagnostics and with wearables using AI. We'll be able to monitor the environments. <clears throat> and, 
And I think we'll have like some dashboard that will tell us, go right, go left, don't do this. It'll, it'll know today you should do this and you should not do that, right? Or today you need to get that blood test and check your, check your you know, blood pressure or it'll check it for you because you'll be wearing something. I think smart toilets are on the horizon. I think you'll, you know, the number one cause of death um, in elderly is, is, uh, is pneumonia in the ICU. It's caused a broken hip. They broke their hip because they fell. They fell because they had, they stood up from a, from a desk or from a table, I mean, from a chair, and their blood pressure fell down, and then they fell because they were dehydrated. So imagine if you woke up in the morning and you peed, and it said, you're dehydrated, drink three cups of water before you do anything. So you knew your hydration status, so you didn't have hypotension and then a fall. So like, I think that's cool. Um, so I think that um, the future of diagnostics is really going to be blood and breath. There's a company out of um, England called Owlstone Medical where you can breathe into a little mask. It's like a breathalyzer, but it measures 70,000 volatile organic compounds. They've been at it for 20 years. They have a back, a biobank of breath going back, and they can now diagnose inflammatory bowel disease, liver disease, kidney disease just by breathing. So I think the days of getting poked and prodded, um, and, you know, there's Grail, the cancer test, a blood test can check for 40 types of cancers. So I think that the, the, the future of finding out what's going wrong, we'll be able to see it coming much earlier. You know, wait until the problem is fully there. Like it used to be, you had to have a lump before you could have it uh, biopsy. Now you can do a, a cancer test on Grail and they, oh, there's a tumor somewhere in your body. Let's go find it and like remove it before it becomes a lump that you can feel or causes pain or cause it metastasize. So, so that's on the, um, the diagnostic side. I break up everything into like diagnostic, therapeutic and lifestyle. <clears throat> and then tech can be any AI wearable app, you know, whatever, the, the Owlstone thing. So I think the, diag the, the therapeutic side is we're going to have cancer vaccines pretty soon. Um, there's already a, a large number of people working on that. My friend Ricardo Sabatini <clears throat> out of MIT is working on some amazing tech to like take some stem cells <clears throat> and then you can, you know, make cancer vaccines from your own stuff. So that's coming. I mean, again, not next year, but but this is this is down the road. These are all things that are coming. I think there's going to be a lot of insight into which foods treat which problems and which foods cause which problems. I was recently with a chef uh, who's the chef for the Rosewood. He had rheumatoid arthritis, and he just changed his diet completely and got off all the drugs. He got off, off methotrexate, off, off of all the DMARDs, these hardcore medications to treat rheumatoid arthritis. He just ate his way out of it because he ate food real healthy food. So I think that we'll learn and we'll see that like healthy food, I think that there'll be farm tech. We'll be able to grow our own foods and our own gardens and it'll be easy instead of like becoming farmers. There'll be vertical walls you can put in your kit, you know, in your house that grow your own fresh food. And it's, you know, that's more sustainable for the, for water supplies, for transportation needs, all these types of things. Um, and I, yeah, so I think those are the, you know, and I think those will ultimately help us live longer. I think the wearable revolution is um, going to provide layers of data sets onto the, the biology. There's, you know, uh, Mike Snyder out of Stanford has got the, a new company which is measuring 500 metabolites. So I think the metabolome, which is all the things that are the exhaust of our biology, if we understand what the exhaust composition is, we can figure out what the, the, the um, combustion that happened to make that exhaust and you can impute and reverse engineer what's going on inside your body and all sorts of different functions. 
I think that the psychedelic movement in neuroscience, I think there's they've got ultrasound waves to treat depression. You'll be able to put a helmet on. There's an eye tracking company where you can, you know, focus on solving ADHD with eye tracking tools and autism spectrum disorder with just eye tracking, you know, exercises versus pills. So I think a lot of the the future is going to be less pills and more interventions that are you can do yourself. And and so that's all the good stuff. The bad stuff is is the surveillance and like everyone's going to know everything about you and and you know this is just kind of this evil side and what are people going to do with it and could you be segregated by this or by that and 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 you know if you get into a world where someone could you know like it's like some author, author, authoritarian panopticon society where they know everything about you and they know everything about your biology they could okay we need subjects for this experiment here they are I mean whether you like it or not you're doing it so I but I think that's more of a political malfeasance and I think it's a medical collusion to things that aren't like first do no harm you know keeping keeping this this the sense of privacy and agency about your health yours like I believe you know I rewrote a copy of the Hippocratic Oath for fun a couple months ago that like every single thing you do in healthcare there should be a every app you use every insurance company you sign up for every doctor you see anything you do it should say, would you like to opt in or opt out of data sharing with this thing? No. Okay, then the next thing. Would you like – and so if you don't ask it at every step, then then the, the evil thing is people are going to suck up your data, package it up, sell it, you know, and, and you don't know what's going on. And, and, and I think there's just risk inherent in that. So I think that, you know, going back to this Hippocratic Oath, one of the things on the Hippocratic Oath that I wrote is every – not just doctors take the Hippocratic Oath, right? Hospitals take it. Pharmaceutical companies take it. Tech makers, health tech makers make it. Biotech makers take it. And one of the things is, is you must ask at every data collection moment whether the person wants to give it or not. And if they do decide to give it, it can be anonymized and go into some research pool that can do stuff for good. But if they, or if it's going to go commercial and someone's going to make money off your data, well then give me a piece of that or donate the proceeds to, to, to charity that I like. But don't just make money off my data and not tell me. Like that's not okay. It's kind of like what Apple's doing with with all these apps, ask not to track. I mean, that's kind of a binary thing. I think we could get much more granular and you should be able to opt. Like, yeah, you can have that data, but not that one. Kind of like being an organ donor, right? It's like I opt into that. That's right. But you should be able to opt into every data collection moment that someone's taking your data. It's yours. Right. Right. It's it's yours. And, you know, like Facebook, they say you're the product because it's free. But healthcare, you pay insurance companies and they take your data and sell it. So you're not, the, you know, so at some point, like the healthcare system is like totally taking advantage of of the opacity of how data is organized and who owns it. And so I think people should own their own data. I've been saying this for decades. There's a big movement now where that's more, more people are saying it. But guess who doesn't want that to happen? The people that are making zillions, go to, go to the big healthcare conferences and look at all these companies selling data. Where do they get it from? You and you didn't even know it. And they've got million-dollar booths selling their million-dollar solutions to healthcare systems. How would you like to make more money from the data you collect off your patients? Sell it to us and we'll or you know, we'll buy it from you and package it up and sell it back to you for more. Like it's just a crazy weird data ecosystem that that is op- opaque and it just stinks. Hmm. Do you do you think that we're gonna be living a lot longer? Or do you think we're gonna be living similar? 
So I think longevity, it, it can be thought about in a couple of different cuts. One is like, there's the, your whole body. Will you live to 150 or will you make it to 90 without going blind at, at, at 80? Can, will your eyes go to 90? Will your kidneys go to 90? Will, will your heart go to 110? Like, so I think longevity isn't just living longer necessarily. Um, I do think we'll live longer. I think the number one element of that is going to be food. You know, if it has a wrapper, don't eat it. If it has ingredients you can't pronounce, don't eat it. You know, I mean, it's, it's really that simple. I think, you know, and, and if you eat a lot, you know, you're not going to live long. Look at all these people that are in their 80s and 90s. Like I have a couple patients in their late 80s. They're jamming, but they eat healthy all the time and they play tennis and they play golf and they're active and they have social. I mean, it's really the social component that is the number one facet for living a long life is do you have social integrations? Do you have social groups? Like being being like living alone and asocial is like smoking three packs a day in terms of longevity. So, you know, I think the mental health crisis that we have, or at least that's being exposed through COVID, I think it's always been there, but COVID like ripped the Band-Aid off and now we can see, see it in its full like sad thing. I think if we have to build communities again and we have to stop fighting with each other and like those are the things that are going to lead to long and happy lives. <laughs> you don't want to live a long and miserable life. Right. And, and so I do think a lot of the technology with the new hips and the spine gels and the, you know, the eye injections that'll make your eyes see longer, like those are all great for the organs. I don't know that we'll, you know, I mean, the, the only kind of comment is that they, the stem cells that they're working with, and I know Len Zahn, who runs Harvard's, you know, stem cell organization, and he's part of the international thing. He, he's like, we're not nowhere close, not even close. To like crack on the code on this stuff. And I think, I think the one quote that I didn't say that's one of my favorite quotes now that I think about it is John Muir said, he's like, when you tug on a single thing in nature, you realize it's connected to everything else. And I think the people that say, well, if you give a stem cell, you know, well, that, that's connected to everything. And just because you may see a little benefit here, you have no idea what the, what the downsides of it are somewhere else. Mm. Um, and, and so biology is, and complex systems biology is so incredibly nuanced, complex, interconnected, pick the pick the buzzword, that even by touching one thing, you probably are influencing other things that you just don't know about and you won't know about them till later. So it's going to take a long time before we figure out how to like, it's like whack-a-mole, push that, don't affect that, move that, like how, you know, it's like side effects of drugs. It helps there, but it causes a problem there. Um, but when you start thinking about longevity and you think about all these people that are pushing these supplements or these things, like what's the downside? They never tell you the downside. They only tell you the upside, which is why I say that's marketing and, and not science. Science has to tell you the downside. That's the responsible. That's why on the drug company ads, they say, and you could get diarrhea, vomiting, you know, they, they, they tell you the downsides. Yeah. But anything that's not FDA approved doesn't have to tell you the downside. So, like, I guess the question one should always ask, going back to what question should you ask is, what's the downside to this person who's telling me to take this thing? And, you know, you go to a cocktail party, you meet somebody, and they tell you, oh, my God, I, I'm t- taking this thing that I've rec- I recommended at this, this clinic. Like, what are the downsides? Oh, there's no downsides. There's no there's no such thing as no downsides. If the answer is no downsides, run. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. In general. in general, yeah. <laughs> I mean, in general. In general. Um, this was so fun. Yeah. <laughs> thank you so much. For yeah. Thanks this. for having me. This has been uh, great. How can people uh, best follow you? Um, so, like I said, I'm on LinkedIn. I, I I'm Jordan Schlain, uh, no C in Schlain, but um, S H. L-A-I-N. And so I, you know, that's the best place to find me. Um, you'll see me posting and people ask me, is it you posting or do you have a team of people posting? I'm like, 
I wake up every morning really early. I read a bunch of articles and I post the things and I try to summarize what I think, why this is important. So I try to post things that are like new and interesting now and are coming down the pipeline and people need to pay attention to. But that's where you can find me. Yeah, I've been following those for the past year and it's uh, they're outstanding. So, well, thank, so you. thank you for that. For sure. Dr. Jordan Schlein, thank you again for being on the Epicuman podcast. I really, truly enjoyed it. And, uh, it's been uh, a wonderful, it's, it's been wonderful being here. I, I guess I'm an Epicuman if I'm on the Epicuman podcast. 100%. <laughs> I'll take it. Awesome. <laughs>